Well, that was the opening music to Garden of Evil, released in 1954 and directed by Henry Hathaway and starring Gary Cooper, Susan Hayward, Richard Widmark, and we don't want to forget Hugh Marlowe with a, with a, with a small part by Rita Marino as well. She had a small part at the beginning. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us in Apple Podcast. Just search for Classic Movie Reviews and look for the podcast with the black and white uh, film reel. And on Facebook, you can find us. Just search for ClassicMovieReviews.net, and that's all one word, kind of spelled out. And on the internet, you can find us at our website at www.classicmoviereviews.net and on that website you'll find an episode listing you can see all of the movies that we've reviewed and if you are so inclined you can leave comments in any of those places and we love to get comments and if you leave a comment in Facebook we can uh, get back to you right away and have a little conversation in Facebook and I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from North Bend today. And I'm Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles welcoming you all back to Classic Movie Reviews. Garden of Evil. I love that title. That could, that could fit many movies that we've seen. It really could. It's a great movie title. And I was thinking about it. Was, it was released on July 9th of 1954. And knowing my schedule in those years, I bet I was at the first showing of it probably on... July 10th, as a a (laughs) double feature. Yeah, probably a Western and then some other, maybe another Western or maybe a science fiction movie or who knows. Uh, Or one of those uh, one-hour detective programmers that they used to do. Oh, right. It was uh, distributed by 20th Century Fox and uh, did very well in the box office. Uh, and I wanted to mention that this is another uh, film in our Bernard Herrmann collection. And uh, it, the, the music in this is so different from the, uh, from the music in The Ghost and Mrs. Mirror. And it will be quite different from our next podcast, The Wrong Man. And I, I, was, I sent you a text. I went to uh, a new film just a couple days ago and... Uh, I've been spoiled by Bernard Herrmann music now when I hear the music in this new film. It's like, oh, I want to hear Bernard Herrmann do the film. <laughs> yeah. He does such an awesome job of putting the music to the movie and, and really supporting the, the the movie action and the plot. Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to point folks to a couple YouTube videos related to Bernard Herrmann. Uh, there's a really great documentary on YouTube, it's, and this is all free, uh, that kind of talks about his life and growing up and influences and then his work and the influence that he's had in uh, Hollywood. And there's a really interesting little segment in there specifically about the ghost in Mrs. Muir. And it talks a bit about his personality and how it kind of comes out in that soundtrack. He was superficially a very gruff character, you know, kind of outrageous in his speech and his opinions. You've heard all those stories about Herman. He just had to be gruff, I mean, uh, because I I, I think it's the kind of person that uh, has to say, either make a joke or do something gruff, or otherwise you're going to cry or say something warm or sentimental. You don't want to do that. But I think there was a lot of that in Herman. And a lot of it comes out in the music. So listen to The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. Jib out there. Too close by the sound. It's the loneliest sound. Like a child lost and crying in the dark. Mm, He's lost, all right. With a caption cursing a blue streak and wondering why he ever went to sea instead of opening a grocer's shop like a sensible man. Typical Benny Herman punctuating the dialogue and the 
rise and fall of the music and the uh, fact that he was doing something about the ocean, which was in the background of all this, and consequently manufactured this uh, passionate and ungratified love. And then there's a great analysis of the Vertigo so uh, soundtrack, and it, this gentleman who puts the analysis together really knows what he's talking about and gives examples of uh, what he's discussing. So the opening of Vertigo is, for me, Bernard Herrmann's extraordinary ability to encapsulate an entire film down into one musical texture and two chords. Get this. Here's the first texture. Remember, Saul Bass's extraordinary swirling images as that music's happening. We are somewhere in which we're already on the back foot. There's a sense that we're sort of spinning, that we don't know exactly where we are. That's before we've had any melody, we've had any tune, before we've had any information. And we get the first bit of information with the stars' names. Coming in underneath that lovely swirling sound. The next one, when we've got Kim Novak... Great big fat chord, but still with those same notes in it. Hitchcock, when his name comes, provides a complete contrast. That's the first time we actually get a sense that this is going to be an atonal score. But then from there, we get this wonderful climb up the side of a building. into these two chords. And then a repeat of that first chord. Now that, to me, in four chords, you have the whole film. And I, I just love that. And then after I listened, watched that little uh, analysis, I listened to the whole soundtrack again. Then I wanted to also uh, give a shout out to a couple of listeners. Uh, Michael Rotman on Facebook uh, thanked us for covering uh, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. It's one of his favorite scores along with Vertigo. And he pointed out that in Vertigo, there's a bit of a Liet motif uh, when Madeline is showing up in the first, let's say, 40 minutes of the movie. And in the analysis uh, video on YouTube, the person who puts that analysis together calls it the love theme. And so I'm, I'm a little bit confused. I'm going to have to do some research on the difference between a leitmotif and, and a theme, because I could see where there could be a, a love theme that would be recurring maybe in Vertigo, but not necessarily tied as strongly to each character as like a leitmotif is. But it definitely feels like a Liet motif as you're watching it. And I'll put an example of that. The best uh, scene in Vertigo for that is when Madeline comes out of the bathroom dressed up as the, the way Jimmy Stewart's character wants her to be dressed up with her hair all pulled back in that gray, that gray suit. Probably one of the best scenes in all of cinema right there. I just absolutely love that scene. And the last the last shout-out here, and I'll let you get back to talking a bit about the making of the movie, is uh, Superfan Shar, who has been listening to us, I think, since the beginning, said that she appreciated that we're covering Bernard Herrmann, but we didn't cover all of her favorite movies, and that would a couple of those would be the Jane Eyre make a movie uh, called Lara, that uh, Hitch Hitchcock did.
Oh, yes, yes. Um, she mentioned Citizen Kane, which we did talk about in Vertigo, which I just talked about. She mentioned Marnie. really interesting i'll have to kind of maybe put that on our list of movies to watch and then fahrenheit 451 which i've been listening to the soundtrack to that and it's absolutely beautiful The director of yes. Fahrenheit 451 wanted Bernard Herrmann to put together a futuristic sounding score. And Bernard Herrmann came back with what he called a timeless score. And this was kind of a theme in that make in that documentary of Bernard Herrmann that he sort of had his own ideas of what he thought the movies needed. And they sometimes contradicted what the director or producers thought. And he just kind of went his own direction. And a lot of times it worked out great, like in four, Fahrenheit 451. And then the last one was Obsession, which is kind of an homage to uh, Hitchcock that Brian De Palma made. And yeah, the music in that is really uh, reminiscent of those Hitchcock uh, film scores. So. Thanks, Char, for pointing out a few more great movies with some amazing soundtracks. Well, Bernard Herrmann was a genius. He really, really was. Uh, one of the things in, in one of those documentaries that I found interesting is he always wanted to uh, be a conductor. And uh, he, was, he was so great at writing musical scores. But in the uh, Hitchcock movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much, uh, Bernard Herrmann did have his opportunity to conduct the orchestra uh, in that climatic scene when the assassination is about to occur. So the conductor in that film, as I understand it, is Bernard Herrmann. What a, if we did a Bernard Herrmann uh, podcast for every film that he did, I think there are like 60 of them so we could fill up a whole year. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, a little bit more on the film. Henry Hathaway, the director, uh, directed... Uh, seven films with Gary Cooper, and uh, one of my f two of my favorite films that Henry Hathaway did, uh, one from 1956, 23 Paces to Baker Street, with the lead being Van Johnson, an excellent mystery set in London, and then the other one uh, with Lucille Ball, The Dark Corner in 1946, and one of my favorite, Clifton Webb. 
is uh, in that movie as the somewhat suspicious art dealer. Uh, imagine that, Clifton Webb in, in a kind of a role like that. Amazing. Henry Hathaway did 57 films. Susan wow. Hayward, uh, outstanding, did a, had a long career. And I uh, checked that she did win an Academy Award in uh, 1958 in the uh, movie um, I Want to Live, which is the kind of documentary drama of Barbara Gra Graham's life. And uh, she was um, uh, put to death uh, under the death penalty law here in, in California. But she had a lot of films, 60 different films over the years. And Gary Cooper, another Montana native. Uh, we, I think we've done High Noon from 1952. Mm -hmm. yep. There's so many. We could do another year just on his films. Pride of the Yankees, For Whom the Bell Tolls, on and on. Uh, and, you know, we talked uh, before the podcast about how, is it Gary Cooper playing the part or is it really the character in the film, because he's so well-known, uh, it's hard to separate Gary Cooper from the actual character that he's playing. Yeah, when I was watching this movie, I, I kept thinking that he's one of those actors that's so famous and in so many movies that I think he almost developed like a Gary Cooper character. And I feel like he's playing a bit of that character in this movie. And then I, another actor that's a modern actor, Brad Pitt, I always feel like Brad Pitt is being Brad Pitt in his movies, and and you just saw Ad Astra, and I was one. I was going to ask you, did it? Was he like? How was his acting in Ad Astra? It was exceptionally well done. He 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 not only was almost in every scene as the lead actor, but he also did the voiceover uh, around the backstory of his life and that kind of thing. He 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 was he was excellent. Yeah. Uh, after about five minutes into the film, I I, I forgot that it was Brad Pitt. So he, he did yeah, a really good job. You know, another person that was that way was Gregory Peck and Meryl Streep. It's hard oh, to sure. it's hard to separate their excellent their excellent performances from who they are as a celebrity. Yeah, I would recommend Ad Astra. It's a very well done film. It's kinda of like the Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad novel. Hmm. Pretty well done. Not not at all like the one that you're gonna be going to uh the uh, the big screen rebirth of Alien. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. The 40th anniversary of Alien coming to the big screen in two weeks, and I've got uh, four tickets myself, uh, Haley, who's been on the podcast before, her boyfriend, and then my younger my youngest son, Jaden. We're all going to go. And what's awesome about that is that um, they have not seen the movie yet, so <laughs> it's going to be their first time on the big screen. And that's going to be amazing to see their reaction because, you know, there's some great jump scares in there and some unexpected twists in no the kidding. plot. Especially when you're watching it on an 80-foot screen. Don't do any spoilers. So I'll be reporting back on that uh, in, a, in a few weeks. Two other actors in Garden of Evil. Uh, Hugh Marlowe, who was in All About Eve and did an excellent job. That may have been the highlight film of his career. But he also did a fair number of science fiction movies. Oh, yeah. He did The Day the Earth Stood Still and Earth versus the oh, Flying yes. Saucers. That's another one that I sometimes mix up with Hugh Marlowe. They were at the same period in time and did some of It Came From Outer Space was a Richard Carlson film. And then the last person I'd like to mention with my froggy throat today, my goodness, Victor Mendoza, who was one of the group of four that took off with Susan Hayward to rescue her husband. He had a long career, 60 films, uh, did a lot of uh, films in Mexico, uh, but one that he did here in the U.S. that I really enjoy is Cowboy from 1958 with uh, the dynamic duo of Jack Lemmon and Glenn Ford. And I never thought those two would ever hmm. be in a film together, but it was an excellent movie. And Mr. Mendoza <laughs> was, was in that film. So... Those are some of the people that... And Rita Marino had a brief appearance, as you mentioned. Well, and I don't think we talked about Richard Whitmark. Oh, my goodness. No, we, we forgot talked him. About, oh, my. Wow. <laughs> we talked about him before in No Way Out, and he was excellent as a super racist character in that, in that movie. I mean, yeah. And I, I think we talked about in that podcast about how he actually wasn't that way in real life and, and uh, was 
quite supportive of equal rights and and became good friends with uh, Sidney Poitier. Yeah, became good friends with Sidney Poitier yeah, after the filming. But he plays another kind of like sleazeball in this movie. I thought. <laughs> well, until the end when he when he when he bamboozles Gary Cooper, Gary Cooper's uh, character so that. Uh, Richard Woodmark would stay behind to defend the group. Yeah, that's true. He does redeem himself at the end a bit, yeah. And also, uh, Richard Woodmark, I think his first role was uh, as Tommy Udo in the film. Uh, to kind of warm up for his career, he wraps a telephone cord around an elderly woman who's in a wheelchair and then proceeds to push her down the stairs. Yikes. <laughs> yes, right. It's a, it's a film with Victor Mature as the lead, and I... For the life of me right now, I've forgotten the name of it. I, I'm sure our listeners will know it very well because that Tommy Udo character is scary for the uh, era of the production code. Oh, Kiss of Death. Kiss of Death. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's a, it's a, we, should, we should review that movie. We have about 4,000 movies we need to no, review. Yeah, endless. Uh, so th- those are the, uh, the, the people, that the primary people in the film. It, the film is was shot entirely in Mexico, and the cinematography is beautiful, and uh, so is the scenery and the technicolor. It's just a gorgeous film. The Garden of Evil comes from the uh, fact that there was a volcano that, that erupted and wiped out this village except for a few remaining rubble ruins and a, and a church. And the uh, indigenous people of the area referring to that whole town and area as the Garden of Evil. I lo- that's one of the best movie titles I think I've ever ever seen. Yeah, uh, and it's uh, it's the only western that Bernard Herrmann composed a score for. Oh, you're so right. Yeah, yeah. He was probably so busy, he ran out of time. He probably had a waiting list of twenty five directors and producers that wanted him to do the, the film scores <laughs> yeah the scenery in this movie is absolutely incredible and there's a few scenes where there's some matte painting that is also really well done this combination of the scenery and the music is epic i kept i couldn't help myself i i kept thinking of the movie that, okay the movie i think it's called the valley of the guanji do you remember that movie oh yes where they find a uh prehistoric dinosaur in the valley right yeah so i kept about halfway through the movie when they get to the the garden of evil like this this uh area where (laughs) this volcano's gone off and it's buried this town except for the church steeple i kept thinking that that would be a perfect point to totally change up the plot and have them discover like a lost world or like you know some some ancient creatures back there in the in the countryside and the music just was so like perfect for that and the scenery that would have been the first for gary cooper and susan hayward and richard Woodmark to be in a science fiction movie like that i know that movie that you mentioned and i cannot for right now recall the lead actor i, I wouldn't be surprised if it was richard carlson oh but, my gosh um, but that was my that was my head that that was my head cannon for this movie <laughs> Well, they they did have some great painting, though. Um, The entrance and the exit to the gold mining area where Susan Hayward leads the group, uh, we know going in that there's going to be something happening on that trail going out. It's just too too scary. It looks like they're taking horses into the Grand Canyon down that trail. But the plot really is pretty simple. Uh, Susan Hayward's husband, Hugh Marlowe, has been injured as they're in this village or town gold mining looking for gold and they've discovered gold and but he's injured and it's just rather seriously and, and she takes off to find some people that can help uh, retrieve him and rescue him and bring him back to be treated and guess what she finds four people that can do it Gary Cooper Richard Woodmark Victor Mendoza and Cameron Mitchell. Um, yep. And they're all sort of, these, these three of the four guys are stranded in this little coastal village in Mexico because their ship broke down and they have to, they have nothing really to do except in, sit in the cantina, drink tequila shots, I guess. That would, that would get old after a <laughs> For while. For six weeks, yes. <laughs> take, take naps and drink tequila. Hopefully they had some food and didn't end up having to go in for treatment. 
but she shows up. <laughs> you see, we want to be peaceful and friendly. We may be here for quite a while. I can handle myself. I'm sure of it. You think not? He just said he was sure of it. Relax, Daly. Well, it may not be as bad as you think, Daly. We can fish in the mornings, get drunk in the afternoons, and you and I can play cards at night. You might even get lucky. Yeah, like catching lightning in a bottle. Fisk, I'll tell you what you can do to me with a deck of cards. Yes, yes, tell me. You can tell my fortune. Anything you like. The Red Queen. That means that... Well, what do you know? Senores, mi esposo quedó topado en nuestra mina. Hubo un derrumbe y está muy herido. Hey, well, what's she telling him? She's got a mine way back, and her husband's trapped in a cave, and she wants help to get him out. She'll pay a thousand dollars a man. Ah, uh, there ain't a man at the bar. Did you hear what I said to them? Did you understand? He just told us. I offered them a thousand apiece. I'll double it for any of you if you'll help me. A man is lying out there hurt, maybe dying, an American. If that isn't enough money, I... Oh, the price is right. But why is it so high? Is there too high a price for a man's life? I didn't put the price on it, lady. You did. I don't know what to do or what to say. I've got to get help for him. He'll die out there. Lady, uh, won't you won't you sit down? Look, why is it that not one of them will go even for so much money? They're afraid. None of them will ever go out there. They're afraid of the Indians. Her films, what, what, what makes Susan Hayward stand out in my memory is she is such a strong woman in films that she made. Uh, the one that she won the Academy Award, uh, I Want to Live, as well as one about Lillian Roth called I'll Cry Tomorrow. She's really, she's a take charge and fills the screen with her, with her uh, charisma and, and toughness. And she, she's not joking around. She needs some help. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking as I was watching it that this is our Bernard Herman Film Festival, but it's also kind of turning into our strong female lead character film festival. You'd think she'd get tired. She's like something hammered out of silver. Now you, you're made out of leather. Vicente, volcanic rock. What about you? Words and flesh. I think I'm the only human being here. She's human. How can you tell? Because of what's driving her. And what is? That man in the mine. Makes every mile and every hour precious. Well, you sound almost human yourself. Susan Hayward is just as strong of a character as Gene Tierney's character in The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, I thought. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, Susan Hayward, I, I believe she had, she wanted her brand as, as an actress to uh, to demonstrate the uh, the uh, toughness and quality and, and strength of, of women. Uh, she had other roles that were equally as good over a many number of years. Uh, so she 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 cajoles and gets these four guys to go with her back into the jungle of Mexico, back up that treacherous trail to to uh, rescue Hugh Marlowe, who by now, after about a week of being in this kind of ramshackle place with very little water and food, is beginning to you know come unhinged. Yeah, he's not in good shape. He's, no, he's, he's not. He looks like he's probably dead when they first get there, and then no. they pull him out, and he's delirious, and probably hasn't eaten for at least a week, and probably hasn't had water in a few days. Uh, so yeah, he's in tough shape. And doesn't doesn't he uh, suspect that they're all there to steal his gold? Well, I mean, I would too. I I was kind of wondering, like, 
I think she's desperate to get some help to help her husband. And she finds these guys at the bar and, and they're going out to help her. Um, but at the same time, like Victor Mendoza's character, Vicente, is marking the trail the entire time because he wants to be able to get back to this place afterwards. And uh, Richard Widmark is, we're not really sure what his motivation is other than it's something to do other than sit around the cantina. And then Cameron Mitchell, just from the get-go, you kind of feel like he's not a good guy. Like, And he turns out to be not a good guy. <laughs> yeah, right. I think he's a gunfighter. I think they're all kind of like Richard Widmark's a gambler. <clears throat> Gary Cooper, I forget his background. He's a former lawman from Texas, I think. Oh, that's right. And then, and then Victor M- Mendoza uh, it has the probably the least onerous background of the four. We, I, I wasn't surprised that John Fuller, who's played by Hugh Marlowe, was really suspicious of what was going on, and and I wasn't quite sure what Susan Hayward's ultimate plan was because if if one of these guys really wanted to, they could just kind of wipe out the whole group and take all the the money Um, there was one scene that was um, pretty interesting i wanted to mention and call out um, they were on their way to uh, the garden of evil and they had to camp out and they were talking about how it was the month this particular month was open season on on white people like the the native (laughs) yes the native people of the Uh. land were you know gonna just kill white people any white people that they saw. And I just thought that was such an, a weird thing to say because they're invading, essentially invading their land. You know, these, these people that are coming in looking for gold and whatnot and prospecting and farming and ranching and all that. And I mean, I think they were just defending their, their homeland versus like just, Hey, okay, this month we're going to kill all white people. You know, it's like, that's just such a weird thing to say. Not many hours old. Some kind of a ceremony, a ritual. Who? Apaches. There was a new moon last night. Well, what about it? Well, this is a kind of a special month for them. They call it the moon of the white man. How do you know that? He knows everything. Let him talk. It comes from the time they wiped out all the settlements, like this one. You know, back in that saloon, 2000 seemed like quite a bundle. But out here, it's dwindling fast. Don't pay any attention to him. That's just an old legend he got from that priest in Puerto Miguel. But he was here. This was his church. Look, do you think they care about us? They killed the people who took the land and built on it. People who made homes and fences and came to stay. People like us who just hunt for yellow dirt and scoop it up and run away with it. You think we're worth killing? Maybe you're right. When there were just two of you, a man and his wife, but now... Now you listen to me, all of you. I hired you to save a man's life. It might not be easy. It might be a little dangerous. That's why I paid you good. If a man's life isn't worth a little extra risk, tell me how much it costs me. Go ahead. Tell me how much more. Well, it, and, and the background, you know, these are indigenous people where they had lived for, for hundreds, if not thousands of years... And then uh, first come in other people that kind of want to take over control of the land, probably a lot of people from uh, Europe and that sort of thing. And then we've got miners coming in to take the gold out. Now we've got these guys coming in. Uh, if I were one of the indigenous people, I'd be upset also. Yeah, so I... Go home. So I was more on the alone. side of the indigenous people. Like, you know, like I, I was sympathizing way more with them, even though that we barely barely see them i mean they're just and i was reading that the way that they were portrayed was not at all accurate to the the way that indigenous people in in that area actually lived and dressed and all that but that's no that's no surprise no i think it's indicative of of films in this era yeah uh so, without going down that we we could probably do another 10 podcasts on films that are done like well that. i wouldn't i I, w- I, w- I think we should do that in the future but the other the other scene that i wanted to call out was um again they're they're on their way to the garden of evil and they are camping out and uh victor kind of gets up and goes off and and does something and then comes back and then 
Susan Hayward's character gets up and goes out and finds that uh, Vicente has left another marker. And so she dismantles that marker and throws these rocks into the creek and whatnot. And then she turns around and then there's Luke Daly played by Cameron Mitchell. And I, I, this is like a real irritating thing to me in in movies where there's like rape scene. Yeah. And I just thought that, you know, you just saw that coming from a, from a mile away. And, and I, I couldn't really tell if he did rape her or if, if she was able to get away, but it's not really resolved uh, for me. What, what actually happened there? Lee, 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 Fuller, Susan Hayward's character, comes back to the campsite and she's kind of all disheveled and, and upset looking. And then kind of a minute later, Luke comes back. And this is where I thought Gary Cooper was like being Gary Cooper. Because <laughs> he's, he's not having any of that. And he, he basically calls him out. Go to bed. We got enough trouble without you running to heat. That's all. Is it? Is that all? You heard me. Well, what if I say it ain't all? What if I say it ain't? Say what you want. All right. I'll say something. Yeah. I think I'll say something. I'll say I've had a gut full of you, Hooker. And I'll say it the way I talk the best. Put that away, Daly. I'd kill tougher men than you just for a living. Yeah. I know about you. You kill them for rewards on their head. When nothing could be done about it except give you the cash. You shut them with tables or in their beds. Wherever their eyes were shut or their backs were turned. I know about you. I'm going to let you square yourself. I'm going to make you kill a man to his face. I'm telling you, Hooker. I'm telling you! I'm telling you! And they get into this fist fight, and and they fight in and around the fire. And I thought that was really well done, and it looked really realistic. It probably was in those days because they were limited in some of the things they could do. Uh, but you can you can bet that there were stunt doubles that were involved in that. Yeah, but it, I couldn't which, tell. I see. couldn't tell that the no, stunt doubles. It's, yeah, it's very well done that way. They're at the Garden of Evil, and and uh, I believe it's Hooker that sets Hugh Marlowe's character's leg that's been broken. But but poor Hugh, he when he re, he he accuses Leah of of wanting to uh, steal the gold. You found him. Just like that, you found him. Just like that. A woman like her, going all the way to Miguel and coming back for me. Can you imagine that? I don't have to. I had to. Days and nights in that black hole trying to imagine it. But I had time to think. And you know what I thought about, Leah? You and me. And I said to myself, sure, she'll be back all right. She'll be back all right, but not for you. And I knew then that none of it was ever for me, from the very beginning to the end of it in that black hole in the ground. And I knew what a fool I was to be there. And who made me that fool? And why? It was the goal, Leah. Never anything else. I was in love with you. How could I know that all you ever saw in me was someone to risk his life? To grovel, to dig. That's all I ever meant to you. A pick and shovel. To get your gold. Yes, I wanted gold. I wanted all the things you can buy. Most people do. I didn't want it like this. And and anyway, they they, they jerry rig a, 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 a thing for his leg to fix his leg, and then they decide they can all get out of there. Well, they decide but that they you, have to get out because they have to get they, out. They yeah, can't they stay to, to try to mine more gold because they're surrounded by these indigenous people, and um, 
they feel like they're probably not too long for this world if they don't get out of there quickly. And uh, Hugh Marlowe is barely able to travel. Uh, but they do try to take as much gold as they can, right? Yeah, they've got several bags yeah. full of gold. So it's got to be a lot of money worth of gold there. So they, they all get going. And uh, somewhere along the way, uh, Hugh Marlowe's character again uh, rides off uh, to, to die alone. Well, because he's... He, he, so Cameron Mitchell's character, Luke Daly, is saying that John is, is slowing them down. And why are we why are we wasting our time bringing him along and and Hugh is kind of almost like agreeing with him like yeah I, I'm just dead weight I'm I need to just get out of here and let you try to escape it was an interesting dynamic between him and Susan Hayward I couldn't I mean obviously she really loved him because she went to all this uh, effort to get back to save him but at the same time he seemed super ungrateful that she had come back to save him yeah the, the dynamic between the two of them is really was really uh, unusual. In the back of my mind now, sitting here after thinking about the film, did he think she just came back to get the gold? Maybe he thought Maybe that so. she didn't expect to find him alive and that, that these guys would help like dig out more gold and then she would have yeah. all the gold to herself. I, I don't know. Like I... I feel like he had maybe also resigned himself to dying in the mine and that he and that he didn't know how to be after he was rescued. And and, and we mustn't forget that he'd been on his own there for several days and probably in and out of delirium and that sort of thing. So he was Well, and he said he said that the native uh people had come and looked in in the cave and seen him there, but they just left him because in his mind he thought that they probably couldn't think of a more torturous way to kill him than the way that he was. Yeah. That he was dying. Yeah. yeah. So he does. Uh, he does take off, and I think uh, Luke helps him in that. Gets gets him on the horse, and off he goes. Yeah. Right? So now they really need to get out of there because things are heating up with the uh, with the uh, native in, in, indigenous people, and, and they're they have to go back down this narrow, dangerous trail. We near the trail across the cliff. It's a little way. It's narrow, they might not follow us. <sighs> hey, ride for it! Which is, when I was a kid seeing this at the age of 12, that was really scary to me. Because they have to jump over these open parts of the trail. The trail looks like it's like three feet wide and... Uh, they're being shot at and whatnot. There was some great stunt work with the horses, I thought, and I know that that was yeah. that was uh, optical, some trickery on on the optics because it was a matte painting and stuff. But then there was a scene where they were in this creek, and then they took the horses up the side of the creek, and the, these horses basically just climbed like this almost, you know, sixty know. degree slope. It was crazy. Some of the things that amaze me about these old films is how they were able to make things look the way they did on film without the use of the uh, the uh, computer technology and other resources that are there today. Uh, it was very well done. As a kid, I never really paid attention to that. I just wanted to know, were they gonna, who was going to make it? Yeah. Who was going to get out alive? And, and our gambler friend, Richard Widmark, Fisk, this is where he bamboozles... Gary Cooper by uh, they're going to draw for the high card to see who's going to stay behind and hold off the yeah because uh, the this this really narrow like ledge that they have to go along is a kind of an integral part to the plot you know not only is it is it dangerous to cross but it's the only way to get out of this valley of where the garden of evil is and so of course that's a perfect place to kind of hold off and hold out while the other group tries to escape and sure enough, good old Richard Woodmike does get the higher card. Surprise, surprise, because yeah, he's a, a card shark. <laughs> he's a, and a gambler. And so he stays behind and does a good job of, of holding off the uh, the people that are out to get them. Yeah, we, we're not going to totally give away the ending here. I think we, we no, talked about that. No. but we talked about that. Not but everybody anyway, makes it, a... let's just say that. And what's interesting is uh, Gary Cooper's character, Hooker, realizes that he's been bamboozled 
<laughs> and yes, wants I to go think. back and, and like, and I don't know, he wants to go back and tell Fisk that maybe, he, maybe I was wrong about you. You know, actually you are, you are a more stand-up person than I gave you credit for. Just a note on, on uh, Richard Woodmark holding off the, uh, the people that want to get them. It reminds me of Bert uh, Lancaster's role in The Professionals, where they've, they've finally gotten out and they're almost back to safety, but they have to have one person stay behind to hold off the last of the bandits. And Bert Lancaster decides to do that. And surprisingly, he does that and survives. Yeah. I think that's such a, a that's used so much in TV and movies yeah. that kind of a setup. And I I, I was just thinking of a, a an old classic Doctor Who episode where they they are having to hold off. Uh, it's almost exactly the kind of setup where they're being attacked, and one guy knocks another guy out so that he can be the one who stays behind and and like saves them all. But yeah, it's just a. It comes up a lot, but it's effective. I think it, it... It does. Yeah. We should probably take a couple minutes and just talk specifically about the music. The The music opens up over the 20th Century Fox logo again. So this is another another interest, in, instance of where they don't play the fanfare. They just open right up with the soundtrack. And... It's it's not that common, so it's interesting that it happened twice in a row in our reviews of movies. And I think it's also a tip of the hat to Bernard Herrmann that his music is so well respected by the studio. And boy, does it catch your attention when it starts. <laughs> It's so epic, wow. and and it really, it really is. reminded me of the music to like Mysterious Island. journey to the center of the earth. had some of the same feel to it for me and and i think that's what got my mind thinking about this would be a great lost world uh, story once i'd start to watch you know started watching it the music really sets that up i'm going to keep an eye out to see when we watch uh, journey to the center of the earth whether uh, the bernard herman music comes up first i i don't know if that's the 20th century fox film or not though yeah. so. and then and then there's a scene when they're headed out and they've just kind of started going up into the mountains and the the scenery is just epic and it's like it's like the people on the screen are just these little dots on the side of the mountain and they're riding yes. their horses up and the music is like swelling up
We lost? No. We passed the face of that cliff. It's just carrying the story along. Like the music is just really driving the story along with the the scenery uh, and this location shooting that they did. As the adventure begins, they really they really send it off. He really does that with his music. And then I noticed that there was quite a few areas in the film where there's just no soundtrack at all. And I know we've talked a lot about how that can be effective as well, because then it 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 does really highlight when the music does come in. Uh, how that yeah. plays into the drama of what's going on. Yeah, we've uh, picked up on that in some of our earlier podcasts. It's almost as effective as the opening of this film by its silence. Yeah, love that. And then, and then there's just uh, the other thing I was looking for as I was watching it. As there's some background music that's just it's just noticeable, but it's not overpowering. So I from that documentary that I'll, I'll put links to the documentary and that film analysis of vertigo in, in the show notes. One of the things that they were saying is that he's really good at having the music be under the film and the dialogue and not being overpowering all the time. And it just kind of supports what's going on. And I noticed that was really the case in this movie. You know, I was thinking about the way he creates his, the, the, the film scores. Wouldn't it have been nice to just sort of be able to watch how he does that? How, how he creates that over the, the, each of the films he's done. It'd be super interesting. And I think it, it's kind of like fascinating to see creative people in their creative process. Oh, but, I, yeah. but I wonder too, if that doesn't like sort of like, like looking in the kitchen to see how the food is made, you know, it kind of takes away some of the magic. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> You go to a, go to a really nice restaurant and you look in the kitchen. Like, oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> You're like, I wish I hadn't seen that. But yeah, so, and then the last, the last thing is like the closing music and how it, it sort of brings things to a resolution. And one of the themes that's really come up with Bernard Herrmann is that he's really good at not resolving things in his music. So in Vertigo, there's a lot of tonality that just sort of doesn't resolve And, and, and it just, ratchets up the tension ratchets up the tension and and i think at the end of this movie he does kind of bring resolution to the story with the music and and it's it's really cool to think about how music can can leave you sort of hanging and and your your expectation of how that's going to resolve isn't met and you're just sort of waiting for it to resolve but it doesn't and then as you're watching the movie you're getting more and more tense (laughs) because you're waiting for that no and he's a master of that. He really is. I think that's probably one of his real hallmarks as a composer is that yeah. ability to do that. My favorite composer, I'd have to say, of film scores. Really. Well, um, so your rating. We were going to do ratings next. The ratings, yes. Uh, well, the, uh, the 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 music, the cinematography, uh, the locations. I give a ten to that. The story itself, I would say, is a six or a seven. Uh, interesting, but you know, not not one of a kind. So overall, I, I, I give the, uh, the film an eight. With I blend that all together, and I would recommend it to listeners that haven't seen it. It's a lot of fun. Similarly, I would say the the music is a ten. The cinematography, the scenery, uh, all that is a ten. It's absolutely beautiful. The matte paintings are beautifully beautifully done. Um, I I would I went even lower on the story. I thought it was more of a five. Yeah. I just thought it was, oh, I don't know. I didn't really understand the point of it as much, and it was just a way to get some people to go on an adventure up into the mountains and and <laughs> and listen to his beautiful and listen to his beautiful sport. music and watch this incredible scenery. I would say the standout though for me was Susan Hayward's character. I thought she was yes. really 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 good and. Uh, she carried the sort of lackluster plot forward for me. <laughs> so I would give it a seven overall. 
seven or eight. And I would recommend to uh, listeners that have not watched uh, Susan Hayward in uh, in the uh, I Want to Live film from 1958. I would really recommend that. That's an excellent, excellent movie. So that's our uh, that's our uh, podcast for Garden of Evil. And what do we have coming up in our next podcast? He asked in our Bernard Herman film festival i i knew i knew you were going to ask me that and i probably should have like uh, had that on the on the tip of my tongue but why don't you tell us well i think it's the wrong man <laughs> oh that's right the wrong man with uh, with <laughs> right <laughs> my i'm working off of my own script uh, <laughs> with uh, henry fonda and vera miles and other folk and this is a film in black and white from the 50s that's really pretty much uh, almost a documentary or a docudrama about actual incidents that happened to the uh, this member of the uh, jazz band at the Stork Club in New York City, and uh, Henry Fonda and Vera Miles play the uh, play the people that are involved in a very very interesting film, quite different from what we've seen in the podcast today. And people are going to like it, and and and, a, and again a very different film score for Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, and then after that, I've got our, our I've got our episode listing page up in front of me now. So, <laughs> the only thing I don't remember about the wrong man is the year. I think it's nineteen fifty four or something like that. Well, after after the wrong man, we've got Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, which is a super fun movie, and I've seen that movie probably twenty times. Uh, so I'll have probably lots to say. And unbelievably, I know I I'm recording it again because it's on this today. So I'm going to record it. And then after after Journey to the Center of the Earth, we've got a James Dean Festival. We're going to review all three of his uh, feature films, East of Eden, Rebel Without a Cause, and Giant. And we haven't picked out what we're going to do next, but I have a feeling it's going to be maybe a run of comedies or musicals. <laughs> I, was, I was talking to Nancy about the James Dean Festival, and I said, yes, we're going to do three movies by Jimmy Dean. And she said, Really? <laughs> The guy that did all the the breakfast foods? <laughs> I said, oh, no. <laughs> Sorry about that. James Dean, not Jimmy Dean. Yeah, I don't think he went by Jimmy, at least not that I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> all right. Well, that concludes right. well, that's our podcast. The, that's Garden of Evil. And uh, this is Matt Johnson coming to you from rainy, almost wintry North Bend. And Bob Johnson in Los Angeles. Wishing y'all happy movie watching. The Garden of Evil. If the earth was made of gold, I guess men would die for a handful of dirt. trio of American adventurers, marooned in a rural Mexican fishing village, are recruited by a beautiful woman to rescue her husband trapped in a cave in Apache territory. Their adventures lead to a remote plateau deep in the Mexican jungle where dinosaurs still live.